Hi there, and welcome to Maxed Out. My name is Max Fawcett. I'm the lead columnist for Canada's National Observer, and I'd gladly live in a 15-minute city if I could. This podcast is about having constructive conversations about public policy issues with people I might or do disagree with. I want to step outside my silos, and I want to encourage other people to step outside of theirs. Today is Episode 8, The Carbon Capture Conundrum. Maxed Out is made possible by listeners like you. We're asking for your support to keep the work going. If you've supported the podcast with a donation already, you have my personal thanks. If you haven't yet, please donate what you're able, whether it's $5 or $10 as a one-time contribution or a monthly gift. Every little bit helps us keep producing more episodes. Please donate at nationalobserver.com. Carbon capture and storage technology is, to me at least, one of those subjects with no good or satisfying answers. The idea of giving oil and gas companies money to clean up carbon pollution they've created is offensive on a bunch of different levels, and all the more so when they've just posted their most profitable year on record. Today, my guest is Julia Levin, an associate director with the climate team at Environmental Defense Canada. She's also worked in the past with Greenpeace Canada and Oceana Canada, and holds a BSc from McGill and a master's in education from the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. Last week, Ricochet Media published a piece she wrote on carbon capture and storage and why it's the wrong way to address the climate crisis in Canada. Given the prospect or at least the possibility of additional federal subsidies for carbon capture and storage being in the next federal budget, along with my own complicated feelings about the subject, I thought Julia would be a perfect guest to help me explore this all a bit. The proposed federal tax credit, along with the existing carbon price, which puts a price on pollution, and the proposed carbon contracts for difference, I know that's very wonkish, but this is basically an insurance mechanism that allows project developers to lock in their carbon price and protect themselves from a future Pierre Polyev government. This all adds up to a package that is just as generous as the one the United States has put on offer through its Inflation Reduction Act last year. And so just to get it out of the way, I'm in full agreement with Julia when she says the feds shouldn't offer a penny more. I'll be writing a column about this in the next little while. But I also think this technology will be necessary if we're going to manage the energy transition successfully. From my perspective here in Alberta, avoid cleaving the country apart in the process. We are now, whether we like it or not, in the midst of a competition for low carbon capital, one that our American and European friends are very clearly trying to win. Julia Levin, welcome to Maxed Out. Thanks for inviting me onto the show. So I want to start with a carbon engineering, which is a a BC company, is partnering with Occidental Petroleum to build its first carbon direct air capture plant in Texas. When the $1.1 billion project is operational in two years from now, it's expected to be able to remove 1 million tons of CO2 per year, which is the equivalent of taking 217,000 cars off the road. Good thing, as far as I can tell. And this is expected to be the first of many of these projects, given the Biden administration's big push to develop more carbon capture in the Gulf of Mexico. In your view, is this a a missed opportunity for Canada or is it a bullet that we dodged? Just to set the scene on this conversation, when we talk about CCUS, carbon capture utilization storage, it's also important to differentiate between that and carbon dioxide removal technologies like direct earth capture. So carbon engineering is a direct earth capture firm Um, So what those companies do is they filter CO2 from the atmosphere. Any technology that's 
very much still in infancy phases with a few demonstration pilots. Uh, but it's a different conversation than the one around carbon capture, utilization, and storage, which at best stops some emissions from polluting facilities from entering the atmosphere. So when it comes to direct air capture, is subsidized through both Canadian and the American tax credit. It's just at a different scale. And it's the challenges are very different. So focusing on carbon capture and storage, which is a technology that's been around for 50 years, which the oil and gas industry is, is really hinging it, lobbying efforts on, that's where we have to be really careful about how we're approaching this technology, both in terms, as you said, of public dollars, as well as baking emissions reduction that CCUS promises in, into our client plans, because if it fails to pan out, that's just a re really dangerous gamble. 50 years in, and this technology currently, and that's tens of billions of dollars of public and private money over those 50 years, and the technology around the world is currently capturing less than 40 megatons, 0.001% of greenhouse gas emissions. To put that in context, in 2009, the IA said by 2020, we should be capturing 300 megatons. We're not, we're capturing less than 40. So this is a technology that just hasn't panned out the way that industry proponents have promised it would. You know, 80% of projects never make it off the ground and the ones that do never kind of hit those emissions reductions targets that have been promised. But let's say the technology worked exactly as industry says it can and it, it has never done that, but let's pretend that's the case still carbon capture and storage, especially when we're talking about carbon capture and storage in upstream oil and gas production, captures a tiny fraction of emissions from fossil fuels. At best, it captures between three to 15% of life cycle emissions. That's because it ignores downstream emissions, 80% of emissions associated with uh, fossil fuels, but it also doesn't do anything about upstream methane emissions, and it doesn't do anything about the emissions that are needed to run the, the, the carbon capture technology. So at best, we're talking about a technology that really only captures a fraction of emissions. And we're talking about putting billions of dollars into this technology while we have solutions that can virtually eliminate the production and use of fossil fuels over the next 10, 15 years. And those are receiving just a fraction of the support that oil and gas companies are receiving, including for CCUS. So those are some of our concerns. Okay, so that there's a lot to chew on there. I I, I kind of want to take it in pieces. And the, the one I'll start with here is, you know, the argument that it doesn't work. The technology has been around for a while and it just isn't that impressive. It's not doing what it says it will. And where I get my backup here, and it's funny, I get my backup in a, usually in a different conversation. And it's the conversation with oil and gas people where they're like, well, we can get our emissions to zero because we can innovate. But your renewable technologies this is as good as they're going to get, and they're going to get garbage from here. And I say, well, hold on, why are you allowed to innovate, but the renewable sector is somehow stuck and can't innovate anymore? And I think there's kind of a parallel here, which is that, you know, if we judged renewables on the performance of their earliest iterations, you know, whether that's the solar panels they put on the White House when Jimmy Carter was in office, or iterations of wind and solar in Germany when they were pursuing their uh, inner Energiewende, I think I pronounced that right, I'm not sure, uh, you know, the, the industrial policy around getting off coal and fossil fuels, the, the results would look terrible. Uh, no one would want to invest in, in renewables because their performance just wasn't very good, but they kept getting better because companies invested money in it, governments provided subsidies, and they bent the cost curve down. And I guess my first question here is, why are we not willing to extend the same courtesy 
to this other technology, that it can get better, that it can improve perhaps by leaps and bounds in the same way that renewables have with time and investment. We've been investing in CCUS since the 1970s, tens of billions of dollars of private public dollars every year for CCUS in CCS for longer than we've been investing in renewable energy. And yet since 2010, the costs of renewable energy, solar have fallen by 85%, onshore wind by 68%. The growth in capacity in the last 10 years of renewable technologies has been has been kind of awesome to behold and it's surpassed the wildest expectations to the point where the IA now says that solar is going to be the largest source, single source of electricity by 2025. It's broken every single record in the last 20 years. In the last 20 years, CCUS has barely delivered anything additional despite billions of dollars. U.S. Department of Energy put a billion dollars into 11 projects, eight failed, and three are underperforming. Governments in Canada at all levels have subsidized CCUS since 2000 to the tune of almost $7 billion. And yeah, that's achieved a yearly capture rate of 3.5 megatons, but that's mostly gone back into more oil production. And the oil and gas industry, these companies, they're not actually bullish on the abilities of CCUS to do anything except improve their social license. And that's clear from the documents that are coming out of the U.S. Oversight Committee's investigation to big oil and climate misinformation. The internal documents show companies like Shell, BP, Exxon just saying, you know, this is about our social license. It's not about actually reducing emissions. Right. So I think the challenge I have there is that we're judging the, the earlier generation carbon capture projects in Canada on standards that they themselves did not commit to. Uh, you know, the, the Boundary Dam in Saskatchewan was a carbon capture project intended to stimulate a, a nearby oil field. It was not intended as a pure emissions reduction project. The Quest project in Alberta, again, you know, people have said it's not pulling emissions out compared to what it said it wouldn't. And you actually look at the application around it, never said that it was a pure emissions reducing project. It was gathering carbon for stimulating nearby oil fields and, and other sort of value added projects. So I understand the fact that uh, it hasn't worked the way we want it to. So I guess my question here is, are you more worried that carbon capture technology won't work or that it will work? I mean, I'm worried that carbon capture technology will delay climate action by a decade and we'll be here in 2035 with no more climate reductions than we've achieved today because we've listened to oil and gas. But back on the question, will it or won't it work? It also depends on what sector we're talking about. So carbon capture for oil and gas production, it's not a climate solution because it ignores 95% of emissions. So yeah, we can spend billions of dollars equipping an oil refinery with carbon capture and storage to capture 5% of emissions while locking in decades of pollution. So there, there is no climate accounting that makes sense for CCUS in oil and gas production. In power generation to allow new fossil gas, natural gas power plants to come onto the grid, it's a really risky gamble there. Boundary Dam is the only coal project um, despite dozens of attempts in the U.S. and around the world, it just have been a failure in the power sector, and we don't need it in the power sector. Renewables are already cheaper than running existing coal and natural gas, and that's without equipping it with CFS, which is really costly. In the industrial sector, so maybe that's the one area, cement, steel making, etc., we should be exploring whether CCUS is potentially an option. But that doesn't go through the oil and gas sector. That's separate. And Natural Resources Canada has hundreds of millions to play with. Maybe that's an option, but there's been... Um, Studies done in the U.S. that have looked at all of the industrial emissions and said that because those industrial emissions are quite difficult, because they don't create kind of a concentrated stream of CO2 the way 
refining natural gas does, the way stripping carbon from methane does. It's a mix of pollutants in industrial facilities. It's actually really expensive to capture that carbon. And the, the study concluded that only 8% of industrial emissions in the U.S. can be economically captured. Carbon capture this is extremely expensive. The industry has not been able to reduce its costs in any, in any way. And the second phase of projects in power sector, in industrial sector, are only going to cost more. So while renewables are plummeting, CCUS is getting more expensive. Yeah, I mean, you'll get no argument from me on the power sector side of things. We know that renewables are cheaper. We know that they are, I mean, far cheaper when you take account of of the carbon costs of fossil fuel production and, and combustion. So, I, you know, I think that that is a difficult argument to make, uh, although they don't tire of making it. I think one of the interesting things in your piece is that, to me, one of the things that jumped out was, and this is a very familiar argument in climate circles and in the oil and gas industry, is what are known as the stage three emissions, basically the ones that happen at the tailpipe, the, the 80%, depending on your math, of, of emissions that happen when you you know combust gasoline or diesel and, and propel your vehicle or whatever else it is. And I agree, uh, carbon capture is not going to do anything about that. It, it, it really can't. My question, I'm hoping you can sort of follow me down this logical road here, is what happens if, let's say, Canada goes, all right, no more carbon capture funding, we're done with this, we're pivoting purely to renewables, and fossil fuel industry, oil and gas industry, you're going to have to wind down your production. What happens on the global oil and gas market at that point? Because I think that is the part that sort of gets missed here, is that we absolutely have to reduce the tailpipe emissions. We have to reduce demand. That's the, that's the name of the game here. But in the near and medium terms, if one producer simply withdraws from the market, that does not in and of itself reduce demand. And it may simply transfer rents from a country like Canada, a flawed imperfect, say what you will, country to other countries that may have even less commitment to climate action and to reducing emissions. So how do you think about that? How do you square that circle? We're not saying oil and gas companies don't invest in CCUS yourselves. We're just saying you have enough profits. You've made enough in the last year to, to cover your CCUS costs. That 50 billion you're asking for from governments, pay for it yourselves. And we're also saying don't put it into your climate plans, but we have no oil and gas emissions cap. If it has really ambitious 2030, 2035 targets, oil and gas companies can figure out how to meet those targets. CCUS isn't an option for 2030. That timescale doesn't make sense. But if they want to equip a few of their projects with CCUS and take that gamble, let them try. If they can't figure it out, then they can decrease their production to hit those targets. Zooming out, the energy transition is happening. The IA now shows for the first time across all scenarios, assuming no increase in climate ambition, that oil is peaking and gas is plateauing. That trend is just going to accelerate with disruptive technologies like EVs, with accelerating cost reductions of, of renewables, and with enhanced climate policies. We know that demand for oil is going down and gas now is set to plateau. And then if we're not banking on climate catastrophe, demand for all fossil fuels has to plummet. And we know what happens to Canadian oil and gas when the market contracts. We've seen it before and we'll see it again. Canada is the source of some of the highest emissions. So we're the first to lose out our market share when contractions happen. Major international oil and gas companies have left the oil sands. Barclays just was the last bank to announce that they're divesting from Canada's oil and gas sector. So the question is right now for Canada, for Canadian politicians at all levels, the energy transition is happening. Do we stick our head in the sand and, and pretend that it's not happening? Or do we start planning? Do we start ramping up? Do we start investing in the sectors of our economy that are compatible with a decarbonized future? And oil and gas just isn't one of those. 
let's see, I agree with most of that, you know, the forecasts around peak oil and, and demand plateauing and then falling off. And there is the fact that our oil, as carbon intensive as it is, there are uses for our weird, sticky, heavy oil that will make it more durable as the economy decarbonizes than I think some people are willing to acknowledge applications for asphalt, for building roads, which EVs or fossil fuel, we're still going to need roads and we need things to build them with. And, and bitumen is one of those things. I think Canada is in not as terrible a position, but the reason why large international oil companies and banks are leaving is because there's no need to invest in new production. There's no new mines. There's no new facilities. Those days are over there in the past. And, and that is, I think, a large part of political anxiety that there is here in Alberta. But I think we're both in agreement that direct cash subsidies for more carbon capture are should be off the table. It's, it's you know, these companies are, are rolling in money right now. They're not building new projects. They're giving the money to their shareholders. They can afford it. If they believe in it, they can afford it. They should pay for it, full stop. But some sort of tax credit where you know, the money is not leaving the, the treasury. It's money that would otherwise perhaps not be spent on these projects. Is that something that you're willing to be okay with if it helps us compete with Americans right now where, you know, America has this, you know, massive inflation reduction act, which has these massive subsidies for carbon capture projects. You know, my concern is that, you know, net of the climate impact, net of the, the you know, whether or not oil companies can pay for it or not, we're just going to lose a lot of this investment to the Gulf of Mexico. And if it works, if it's successful, those are jobs that's tax revenue that we just don't have in this country. We need jobs in Alberta. We need jobs in, across the country as we manage this transition. You know, we've seen what happens to political movements. We've seen what happens to climate policy when people get nervous about their jobs. So we hear a lot about how the IRA has more generous subsidies than the Canadian system does. And those aren't actually based on any analysis that's been done. Um, you started off the program listing a bunch of Canada's subsidies versus U.S. Obviously, we have our investment tax credit, which is estimated to provide a billion dollars over the next 10 years. That's way more than the IRA's tax credit. And there's is a performance tax credit, so it rewards capture tons of carbon versus ours. You know, that's money that foregone revenue, whether or not these projects pan out or not. But we also have Alberta's carbon pricing program and tier returning money. We have the credits that you can get under tier that are stackable with the clean fuel standard credits. Um, so that's double counting that oil and gas can, companies could do on their CCUS investments. We have potential royalty reductions on CCUS investments coming out of Alberta. We have the net zero accelerator. There's $8 billion, that $15 billion Canada growth fund. There's a lot of money on the table that could go to CCUS. It's just a tremendous amount of money. It's not like these companies are going to close up shop if we don't subsidize them. They do have the power to, to pay for these things themselves. I'm very concerned about jobs in Alberta, but I'm more concerned if we pretend the transition isn't happening. You know, I want good jobs for every person across the country and renewable energy can do that. Energy efficiency can do that. Reclamation can do that. But the oil and gas industry doesn't provide that. It's interesting. You you talk about how they're not movable assets and and I remember when the NDP was elected here in 2015 and you started hearing a lot of chatter from oil and gas companies who were head office here that, well, they were going to pick up stakes and move to Saskatoon because things were nicer there and the government was nice to them and didn't, didn't put mean policies in place to hurt them. And I remember saying to someone, I'll bet you, I'll bet you 10 bucks, not a single major company moves its head office. And, and I won that bet because as it turns out, people are hard to move. People don't like being having their kids taken out of school and, and shifted to different provinces, never mind geological assets in the ground, which very obviously can't move. So I, I think we are on the same page around you know, the need to call the industry's bluff on this, that they've 
been given enough encouragement, enough support, enough incentives. Now it's time for them to either show us that they believe in the technology or come up with something else. What would you like to see in the federal budget in the absence or in place of more subsidies for, for carbon capture? What would you like to see that would create jobs, support the energy transition and build a more resilient and fair economy in places like Alberta as well as across the country? The Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives last week put out a report in which they kind of tallied the level of federal government investment in climate solutions that we need to see in transportation, in agriculture, in renewables, in transmission, um, because obviously interprovincial transmission is one of the key key issues there. And they found that we need to invest 2% of the federal government's spending power every year, I think for the next five years, into, into climate action. It's a big total. It was just under 400 million. Two cents on every dollar for climate action, for building those thriving communities, especially when you compare it to the, the costs of inaction and what we're seeing right now. That's a really reasonable level of spending from the federal government that could set Canada up to thrive in a climate safe future, in a future where in which we're no longer dependent on oil and gas production. I think one of the mistakes we've seen in the communications around climate policy and the energy transition so far, and this is just my opinion, but is that it's been framed oftentimes in terms of harm avoidance or in terms of risk mitigation, which no one really gets excited about risk mitigation. No one gets excited <laughs> about harm harm avoidance, unless you're an actuary and, and, you know, God bless those people. But when you start talking about it in terms of prosperity and, and opportunity and jobs and new things and whiz-bang machines, I think people then start to get a little bit excited. And you're starting to see this in the U.S. where Democratic governors in the, the Rust Belt announcing these big new battery plants and, and all of a sudden... This thing that had been framed for people by Republicans in terms of jobs lost, you know, the energy transition, climate change, it's going to kill your job, it's going to take your money, is suddenly now being recast as, no, this is great. You're going to be able to, you know, get a fantastic new job. It's unionized. You're going to be able to take care of your kids. You're going to be able to put new things on the, the dinner table. And I think it's starting to change the conversation down there a little bit. And I, I don't get the sense that it's happening yet here in Canada, that we've, especially in Alberta, that we've really kind of grasped the fact that you know the the oil and gas industry almost no matter what we do is the sunset industry it's it you know they are replacing people with technology they have been for years they don't want to pay the high school dropout $140,000 they're not enthusiastic about paying that much money for labor and so they've been constantly trying to figure out ways not to pay it so those jobs are disappearing uh, no matter what happens and i wish we could just sort of have a better communications effort of get excited about all these great jobs that are coming your way in the next 10 years, you know, that, by the way, are not sunset industries, by the way, are not, you know, you don't have to worry about them getting phased out. They're going to be here for as long as you and your kids are around. So what would you like to see around that? Are you having ideas around how we can kind of push that narrative forward for people so they don't feel like they're choosing between the job they have now and a job they can't see? I mean, I, I totally agree that this is one of the major issues about why we don't see just just overwhelming support for huge investments and huge support for climate solutions is that people are still more scared of what the energy transition means than they are of the climate crisis, which is wild, but shows the power that the oil and gas industry has over popular imagination and the, the influence they have on mainstream institutions and media. Cautious optimism that that's shifting because there's a polling that wasn't that was done not so long ago shows the majority of people in Canada think that the renewable energy 
grit will be more secure and more affordable. And that's a huge shift. And it doesn't resonate in 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 how every conversation around this is going to go. But that's but that's a big shift. But I think we we have to keep focusing on building that vision of what this future could look like. And I think that's something that like climate organizations like my own haven't haven't done as much as we need to. Building that vision, showing people their role, how they thrive, how their health is better, how their communities are better. And we also need governments to do a better job of communicating. Sometimes the federal government leads with policy and forgets to communicate and bring people to the to, to the policies that they're proposing. And they, they really do need to be better advocates for themselves by helping people join this journey with them. I do think that's the that's the major challenge now. How do we bring people who have every right to be anxious? Because they're just hearing from their neighbors, from their community radio, that this this is bad news for them. And that just can be further from the truth for most people. Of course, there are people who will be impacted and we have to make sure we have the supports in place for those folks. The transition, if approached well, if we start planning now, doesn't have to be as catastrophic as we think it might be. So one thing that that, that we often fail to think about is, is what building up CCUS means. And if we were to build up CCUS at any kind of climate relevant scale, it would require basically the equivalent of today's fossil fuel infrastructure so if we're serious about CCUS, we should think through the implications of that in terms of new carbon pipelines that transport the captured carbon to, to sites of injection. And those come with enormous risks for communities that might be impacted by any leaks, carbon concentrated, high pressure, carbon dioxide access is an asphyxiant, so it can be really dangerous for communities. But the flip side of that is also in terms of mounting environmental liabilities, which is the problem that Alberta has a lot of experience oh. with. Exactly. We're, so the approach now to storage, and when we talk about carbon storage, we're saying permanent, not hundreds of years, but thousands of years. And the system in Alberta now transfers liability back to the government's 15 years after a storage site gets closed. And then it's the government of Alberta taxpayers that are responsible for monitoring, for paying landowners if their crops get ruined or, or, or people if they get sick. The risk of stranded assets and mounting environmental liabilities with carbon capture is a huge issue that isn't receiving nearly enough attention. So I just wanted to flag that. No, and that's a really good point. That's that's probably one that I haven't paid enough attention to. And it just gives me nightmares because there's a giant oil sands mine up in Fort McMurray that's been leaking apparently for like six months. And they just announced that they're working on a cleanup plan. And, and we all know that the tailings situation has still not been addressed. Not been, you know, they keep saying, well, we'll figure it out one day, but one day hasn't come yet. And billions upon billions in unfunded liabilities. And then the Daniel Smith government coming out and saying that we're going to create this $20 billion program to give oil companies money to do the thing they're supposed to do anyways and clean up after themselves. And, and the idea that we could be adding another issue like this on top of these other two giant issues does not make me feel good in the bottom of my stomach. Industry has, has shown great skill at being able to offload its liabilities and take its profits and put them in its pocket. That is a good point. I'm, I'm wondering, just in closing, I, I mentioned it a second ago, the, the, I think it was called R-STAR when it was proposed by Daniel Smith, the lobbyist, and now it's being implemented as a pilot program by Daniel Smith, the premier, as a $100 million program to give oil companies royalty credits in exchange for cleaning up after themselves, which they are supposed to do anyways. What does that say to you about you know, the prospect of further subsidies, perhaps, for carbon capture if she is reelected and, and given a four-year run in government? seems to me that the, the federal government subsidies might become a, a sideshow fairly quickly if she's given full reign to use the Alberta Treasury and the money that is properly belonging to Albertans to, to subsidize these sorts of things. 
just terrible use of taxpayer money. With the previous UCP leader, I was actually relieved to hear Kenny say that Alberta wasn't considering any subsidies. Now I'm really worried, and we'll, we'll see, I guess, what Danielle Smith puts up for the oil and gas companies, because you're right. I mean, this, this scheme was one that the former government wouldn't have even considered in terms of our star and you know, Savage came out against it in yep. in past years. And now they're going forward with what they're putting as a small pilot and it'll scale up. Sonia Savage, the former Minister of Energy, has very uh, conveniently been shuffled off to the Minister of Environment, where she can no longer oversee this program. Isn't that just an interesting turn of, uh, of events? You know, as much as a lot of people, certainly myself, did not enjoy the Kenny government, they at least appeared to have some sort of principles that they would adhere to. And, and you know, you saw that, as you said, with them saying, no, we're not going to fund this ridiculous program. It's it's an insult to the idea of polluter pay. It's it's offensive to sort of the, the well-being of the province. And, and now who knows? So it really is sort of a frightening prospect to think of how much money we could be throwing down this hole. But before we go, is there anything, anything else you want to say on this subject? Anything you want to leave listeners with about the state of play here for carbon capture and, and the energy transition? Yeah, my parting thought was would be it, it didn't have to be this way. Oil and gas companies have been lying for decades about climate science and climate solutions. And that's why we're at the point where their fairy tales about speculative technologies even make us pause and consider them as reasonable solutions at this stage. But the science is really clear. We need to have emissions this decade. That's not a timeline that CCS is compatible with. And we need to start having a, a conversation about phasing oil and gas out over the next couple of decades. So we have to move away from these fairy tale solutions that are about prolonging our dependence on fossil fuels. We have to ditch fossil fuels, not fix them. Julia, thank you very much for agreeing to appear. I certainly learned a little bit, probably nudged me a little bit away from my initial position, which is always an interesting thing. Thank you for, I think, making a wonkish and potentially <laughs> boring issue very engaging. Thanks for a great conversation. Just a reminder that we need your help to continue our podcasts. Every donation helps, and please rate us a five on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends, your family, we want everyone to find us. Maxed Out is produced by Canada's National Observer. Our managing producer for podcasts is Sandra Bartlett. Associate producer, Zara Kozema. The executive editor of Canada's National Observer is Karen Puglese. Our publisher is Linda Solomon Wood. I'm Max Fawcett, and next week, it's Hot Politics with David Mackay. See you in two weeks.